Well, hey, listeners, something was up with my microphone, so whenever I talk, it's a little uh, clicky. Hopefully that doesn't drive you crazy, because this was actually a pretty fun conversation. There are a lot of uh, interesting ideas that came up that we didn't get to explore more. But let's go right into the introduction. Well, we have another interview that you've arranged, Cora. Uh, and this one, you know, I, I was reading the initial uh, blog article about just like the attributes of DevOps stuff. And I, 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 got, I got to be honest, I was like, I don't know, it's just, just going to be about, you know, more obvious things that improve developer experience. But as, as I read it, it was actually like a very practical list of just like a punch list. And I mean that in a good way of just like, here's the minimum stuff to do. Like here's actual practical things. Cause a lot of the stuff I've read about DevOps over DevOps, DevX over the years, and probably heard at DevOps conferences tends to be, um, I don't know how I would characterize it. Just sort of like, well, that would be great. Right, like just the uh, the kind of happy land of talking about stuff. But uh, this article you, you you sent over was great because it's uh, actual things that that you can put into practice. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's written by Paul Kelly, who is uh, one of our labs consultants. Our, our our labs team is a team that goes and works uh, side by side with developers at different enterprises to help modernize and move their applications to uh, modern platforms, uh, uh, whether it's Tonsu application service, formerly cloud foundry or, uh, Tonsu application platform, a Kubernetes based platform, but it, they, uh, this team focuses a lot with on modernizing applications and, um, and through that, of course, they're exposed to a lot of different developer experiences at different enterprises. And so there's that, but Paul, Paul also has a very, uh, a, a long background in technical writing as well as R and D. Um, so really well positioned to understand uh, developer experience. And this article, I uh, really recommend it. We had a fascinating conversation with Paul, um, but uh, the article covers everything from a really solid definition of developer experience, what it means to the enterprise. Uh, so I think folks from all levels would benefit from reading the article. And, uh, and as I mentioned, sort of at the end of the interview, this tension between security and uh, developer innovation uh, and uh, freedom, I guess, and also tips to running your platform as a product so that you can lead towards a, um, a, a good developer experience and how important all of that is. So it's a great article and we had a great conversation. So yeah, take a listen. And uh, you know, naturally we start by talking about COBOL. <laughs> well, I, I, wanna, I wanna have you introduce yourself here in a little bit guest, but reading through your background and I was, I was able to uh, acquire the, the PDF of one of your books on COBOL thanks to the register and, and a form there. I went to Microfocus and I tried to use their Legion form, but an error occurred both in Safari and Chrome. So I know it's not my, my blockers. I haven't gotten the chance to read it, but I was, I was like glancing through it. And uh, I, I was thinking, you know, uh, you wrote, recently wrote an article on uh, developer experience DevX, which is great. It was like this list of like how to make things nice for developers, right? Like almost like a checklist. Uh, but, you know, the combination of all that stuff was making me think, uh, like, like, so why did we need more than COBOL? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Because um, <clears throat> as old-fashioned and derided as COBOL is, it's, it's got some good points, which is that it's very performant, and it's good at handling money, which most languages are not. Mm, that's one of my favorite things to be good at. I, li I like yeah. that. <laughs> so, but on the other hand, it is... By modern standards, it's not an easy language to work with. Yeah, and and do you think? Well, well, first of all, what do you mean by it handles money well? That's an intriguing thing. Well, 
So most languages, their their default for for doing any kind of calculation would be a float or a double, mm. and those are binary types, and um, they don't do money well because money is usually decimal. Yeah, and so you get rounding errors, and that becomes particularly significant when you're doing interest calculations. Those errors can mount up really fast. COBOL has um, has got a kind of decimal type, which is from memory, possibly comp three, but was it designed? You think was it designed it, for that purpose? It was designed for that purpose because the first thing it was used for was business applications, and what do you handle in business? You handle money. Mm. Oh, fascinating! So wait, what? How? What? Where does your background in COBOL come from? It comes from the many years I worked at Microfocus, um, who were for a long time effectively known as the kind of the COBOL company. They were the, the, the first company to put COBOL actually on, on uh, microprocessors, on PCs. And I mean, they did that even before the IBM PC. So I think they were, I think their first product probably ran on something like a rare black box, if, uh, if anyone has that long a memory. And I, I joined them in the, I guess, the, the early 90s. Uh, and at that time, their, their product was doing fabulously well because people had business applications and they wanted to run them on microcomputers. And Microfocus was pretty much the only game in town for that back then. And, oh, wow. and so, you know, you know, I'm like, like, I'm, I'm interested in talking more about like the, the, the world of COBOL because like, I feel like we're in the middle of like, you know, in, in the DevOps world, like one of my, one of my theories, I don't know if it's like me being snarky or, or not, but like, is like, you know, here we are in 2022 was last year, but now in 2023, and we're sort of like, uh, rediscovering and rebuilding a good developer stack, right? Like there's a lot of commentary and a lot of products doing that. And so I wonder in, in your like experience since then, and then through like, you know, let's say like the, the, the Windows era of things. And then we had like the web and then there was this like rich internet application, like mobile thing. And I don't know what you would call after that, <laughs> where, where we are now, cloud maybe. But cloud, like, yeah, yeah like, like my, my sense is, and maybe this is just part of being an, an aging technologist, is that like, I don't know, every five years, every five or 10 years, we just like rip everything down to the studs and totally rebuild it, right? And, and hence the sort of like, why did we need more than COBOL, right? And I think like, I don't know the COBOL space very well, but I would imagine like a lot of the kind of tools that, that we would be talking about for like developer experience nowadays for whatever type of development you're doing, sort of like, have existed multiple times in the COBOL world, right? To build up all the stuff beyond the languages that you would need and kind of the tools and integrating them together that like you would have that stack. So anyhow, I mean, it does seem like it, it, it does seem like it's, it's interesting, at least to me to think about like, at what point were we like, this thing handles cash really well, but we got to start over, right? Like we can't, we can't, pull it forward <laughs> like and therefore we're gonna have to like get rid of everything and just kind of start from scratch because uh, it feels like we're kind of at the beginning of doing that with a lot of with like the we don't even have a name for it anymore but with the devx stack uh, of things that we have well it's, it's always struck me that it has got a lot in common with the fashion industry in the you know 
in the, the trends the, the the hemlines go up the hemlines go down everyone gets very excited mm -hmm. um but to some extent the same stuff comes around again and again um one of the things that kind of uh struck people were at the beginning of the the web thing so web one zero was how much it looked like what ibm had built for um for mainframe applications which was kicks kicks is pseudo conversational you have the illusion that you're interacting with the computer, but most of the time you're not. You're just at a terminal, and every so often it's going to send something off and you get a reply back. Well, that's exactly how the, the first web applications worked. Mm, right. They were exciting, and, and Kix was was dull. So everyone went through a kind of phase of how can we make our Kix applications look like web applications, whether or not that actually made sense. So there, there's that. Having said that, I guess there, you know, there are genuine improvements that have happened in the technology stack over the years, but I think when you're up close to it, it's hard to see what they are. And it's only when you look back, you think, yeah, that was an improvement, or no, that was a really terrible idea. And the, those two <laughs> right, books that right. you wrote about COBOL, um, they are, so they're written for Java and .NET developers. They were, yeah. And it's, um, and so they provide a, a guidance on how to, is it, are you actually converting the code? Is it automatically converted from COBOL to Java or .NET? So, no. Well, so, um, I mean, I don't want to spend too long to about microfocuses sort of proprietary technology, but they're probably happy if I do. Um, they have what they call the Visual COBOL compiler, and that will compile COBOL code, you know, genuine COBOL code written any time in the last, what, 60 years now, and they can compile that to either run on JVM or run on .NET. And then in addition, they added enough object-oriented features that you could actually make that code play nicely with those new languages. So for people who have business logic, you know, a lot of, have invested a lot of business, money in, in business logic written in COBOL, it's a way to pull it forward. Interesting. By recompiling it and then that, making it talk to newer things. Does and that actually make it uh, like, have you ever seen these, these COBOL applications then even run in containers and, and run on Kubernetes? Is that a thing? It is a thing. Uh, in the second book that I wrote, I uh, did a, a there, there's a kind of works example of running a COBOL app in, in Kubernetes. Mm. And in fact, one of the things I did when I first started at Pivotal a few years back was I I did a little demo of running a Spring Boot on, um, the, on Cloud Foundry. Spring Boot with co COBOL code. So Spring Boot with a COBOL, COBOL, code. COBOL business logic, but then effectively made that a jar consumed by a Spring Boot front end so you could just package it and run it in Cloud Foundry. And hey, presto, you're doing, you know, interest calculations using um, using COBOL, but running on Cloud Foundry. Wow. You can well, finally so handle like money. And <laughs> you can really handle money. Because in general, when you want to handle money, you have to use big decimal, and that code is not easy to read. Best of both worlds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, wait, tell us a little bit about that transition into um, into Pivotal and this sort of pivot in your own career, I guess, uh, because I guess at that point you became more of a consultant. I did, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of interesting because I, I spent my whole career up to then really in, in effectively R&D, doing package product. And working as a consultant was, was very different in lots of ways. One of the things it... it it gave me a much better appreciation for 
the problems that people developing business applications have, because up to mm -hmm. then I'd really been doing, I guess you'd call it more systems programming. But also it did, the thing I liked about it was it did give me a chance to go and talk to people a bit. Because when you're in R&D, you're kind of in the ivory tower and certainly Microfocus, we got to speak to customers once a year at a user conference. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was that also your first experience doing things like paired programming and and, um, and other such sort of uh, collaboration techniques that Pivotal employed? We used a bit of pair programming at Microfocus, but it was never kind of part of our core programming model. We used to pair up mainly to solve difficult problems. So it was a huge shift for it you. Was a huge just, shift in yeah. every way. I, I definitely had culture shock for, for several weeks. And do you feel so? So you've written this article. Um, so I guess just, you know, the, so the inspiration for this particular conversation uh, is rooted in a, in a blog that you wrote for the VMware Tanzu called The Developer Perspective on Developer Experience. Yeah. Um, and so I guess uh, there's the experience, I guess, working as a consultant doing paired programming and, and guiding other developers into not improving not just their code, but also their, their methodologies. Um, as well as, I guess, this whole revolution that we're experiencing in terms of DevOps and the kinds of automation systems that we are now capable of creating. Um, so I guess I, I, it seems to me that those two would be the biggest sort of influencers in terms of uh, tuning in, I guess, to this, to what exactly might make a developer experience good, or or is that not, is it broader than that? But to be honest, it was broader than that in that, Again, when you work at, um, you know, when you work at a software vendor, they treat their programmers really well <laughs> for obvious reasons. <laughs> and they make sure they have all the equipment they need to work and that they can find out what they need to know and everything else. Working as a consultant and working particularly with a lot of banks and a lot of telcos, those organizations don't really see themselves in the business of developing software. But they absolutely are. That's now the core of their business. And I think they're, they're kind of waking up to that now. But for a long time, they saw it as just another thing that had to get done. And they don't treat their developers well. It's um, interesting that, you know, the book, The, the, um, the New Kingmakers, that's, that, which basically talked about how uh, the combination of, I guess, public cloud and the explosion of open source software really shifted who had the the power to sort of crown any kind of technology uh, as as more more successful and how to, you know it was more it was increasingly important to make sure that developers were happy that they were productive and it feels like I don't I don't remember what year that book was written but I feel like it's at least could it be 15 years something it, like that it's so it's surprising I guess I mean it, it is and it isn't surprising right to hear that um, developers are still maybe in some places under a model that that really like uh, I think if you're if you don't see it in person often if you're not exposed to it by working with enterprises it's easy to assume that that most of the world has uh, sort of modernized their ways to to prioritize developer no they're a cost center and, and that's really the root of the problem they're a cost center and even if you're going to treat them as a cost center I don't think they my feeling is that these large enterprises are not thinking about it rationally. So 
one of the things that I've seen, at, 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 especially at banks, is that they went through a big outsourcing phase back in the 90s and noughties. So they outsourced a lot of their development, and now effectively some of their development seems to be outsourced to other outsourcers. I'm, I'm not sure how it works, but effectively you, you could be at a large retail bank and half their, or maybe probably more than half their developers not only aren't employed directly by the, the bank, um, and they're employed by some kind of third-party outsourcer. But that third-party outsourcer is the, the person determining what laptop they have and all the rest of it. And their priority, presumably, is profit. So I have worked, I've paired with developers who have such poor equipment that we are waiting for half an hour for them to boot up their machine and start Eclipse. Wow. Now... In terms of, you know, at the end of it, all the bank is paying for that. The money that's been saved by giving that developer a cheap, crappy computer, mm -hmm. I would <laughs> I would suggest is is wasted in, in a few weeks by the amount of time that they are not productive. Wow. That's that's one kind of example yeah. where this kind of cost center mentality where, well, why would we want to give them nice equipment? It's very short-sighted you're you're throwing money down the drain so again when you're you know banks obviously they can they could lease their own employees they could say well we'll give you decent laptops but possibly with their outsourcing contracts they need to be more specific about not only do you give me you know 50 developer bodies to do this work but i want them equipped in this way it's, it's ironic because you're they're trying to do more with less more you know more 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 i guess more work with with a where, wherever salaries and costs are lower yeah. in reality they they're they're kicking they're shooting themselves in the foot because they're they're paying less but they're also getting less efficiency because developers are blocked and so many developers are blocked um communication is difficult i think i think you're starting to see and again i don't have any statistics or anything to back this up this is purely anecdotal but i've certainly we we've, we've had conversations with with organizations who are now kind of wanting to start bring bringing more back in house again because of the problems of distance um time zones all those things that make make the outsourcing model difficult and then on top of that as i say you've got this kind of thing the outsourcers themselves they want to maximize their profit naturally Right, you make and you make it very clear actually in your article that the two things that developer experience tied to, or two of the big things that de good developer experience are tied to, is uh, growth for the company and also retention. Yeah, talent. Absolutely. So if you kind of, you know, if if working for you know even if working as a kind of an outsourced contractor for Bank X means that you get treated better than the other people in your outsourcing organization, I suspect you'll probably find that the good talent will gravitate towards Bank X. It must, so yeah. what, what, you know, what, what, what we're talking about here is, is, uh, is making me think, like, like, you know, when I was reading through your article, of course, I was, I was uh, agreeing. And just like, you know, as, as Cora was rea reacting to, like the situation uh, you're talking about, like, well, I, I, think, I think the three of us having kind of the role, like you're saying, we go out and talk with a lot of people. It's, it's, it's still shocking, but not incredibly surprising, <laughs> right? That, that like there's this craziness going. So what, one of the things I was wondering and that I struggle with is like, so who needs to hear this? 
<laughs> right? Like, like who is it in the organizations who's like, oh, right, I never thought of that before or, or something like there's, there's some kind of like disconnect somewhere like, like, and just to pile on as, as is my, uh, my habit. Like, you know, one of the, one of the things linked off from your article was, uh, uh, like a Forrester consulting thing that, that we have available. And it was, uh, you know, I didn't look up the methodology for the survey, but like, you know, 75% of executives agree that software is important. Right. And so there is like, kind of, as you were saying, everyone agrees with that 2010 software is eating the world thing. <laughs> and yet like, it's to use my favorite kind of gross analogy, right? It's like everyone says flossing your teeth is good, but probably not everyone does it. So there's like someone in your head that that hasn't decided to uh, to to get a better laptop, basically for developers. Yeah, and it's a, a good question. I mean, I, I kind of I was hoping this this particular blog would 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 reach people in the C-suite because in the end, they're the people who make the big decisions. Yeah. But that, that kind of, we always blame accountants. <laughs> Which isn't, <laughs> right. I don't think, entirely fair because presumably accountants also work within a framework and they have their own goals yeah. to hit. But their, their it, laptop might take 45 minutes exactly. to compute an Excel macro. <laughs> but the point is, so whoever it is who's kind of making those budgetary decisions, it needs to be kind of within that framework that says, well, if we save money here, is it costing us money over there? Mm. And I, I'd say that it is, but I don't think that those decisions are always taken like that. They're kind of very much a kind of, you know, we we have a budget of this this year for 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 hardware or whatever it happens to be, and we're not going to go over that. I mean, one thing that really struck me as I was reading your article is that the, you know, the term anytime you have something like a term like developer experience, at least for me, like the the first time I hear that term, my sort of gut instinct is to go towards the. It's it's a term that implies sort of a human. It's a human experience, right? So it's so there's thoughts that it can elicit about like, are my developers happy? Are they? And it and 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 yes, those things might be part of it. But what I really liked about your article and where I think it would be really effective for a C-suite to see it is that it's it's really a it it really concentrates on the business decision of it, right? It's, it is a business decision and, and developer experience is defined as the, the ease with which uh, software can be created and sent down the workflow all the way to production, right? So when people think about DevOps or automation, if they can get it all right, the, the end result of that is developer experience. It's not this other thing that you stick on the left-hand side of it so that, you know, developers are, are with a goal of a developer being happy it's the entire process that already exists in conversations under other terms um being a business a benefit to your to your bottom line if you make those people happy in the first place they're going to try harder to solve all the other problems for you and that's what you want and again i think there's kind of i don't know I, I, again i'm speculating but some of this is kind of this this idea that we have a production line and that therefore all the cogs in the machine are exactly the same will perform exactly the same given the same inputs but people are not like that and they're not like that to be honest they're not like that even when they are on an old-fashioned production line assembling automobiles because you know the i think the 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 japanese showed us that having a less kind of um us and them kind of split between management and workers 
made for better productivity and better quality. And I, you know, I think it applies the same, uh, you know, but more so something like um, software development, which is a, a kind of intellectual activity where you're being asked to sit and think all day. Right. And, and, and by smoothing everything else out, you allow space for to that. Think. Yeah. Right. Right. You're hiring talent. Give them, give them an opportunity. Yeah. Right. So don't, and don't make it hard for them. Make it, you know, that's the other thing is make the on-ramps such as easy for people to do the right thing. Because again, you see this kind of thing again and again that you you make it hard for people. So if you make it hard for people to get what they need, they either give up and they don't do anything, or if they're motivated, they will find a workaround. And now they're not using your guardrails at all. So you've lost control, but you've also wasted a lot of everyone's time. Make, make it easy for people to do the right thing. Give them the on-ramps to get what they need. Well, well, as you know, you're, you're using the word there. And that's that's one thing that I think you mentioned quite a bit is the not only like the on ramp to just doing development, but it's almost like the daily on ramp. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like the and, you know, I haven't I haven't read, you know, stories and lore about this kind of thing for, for a while. But I remember when I was a, a younger developer, right, there was there was a lot of time being spent talking about. This word wasn't used, but as we would say nowadays, like achieving a state of flow, right? Or I think to use maybe an older word, concentration, right? And that, you know, there's all this other stuff associated with what flow is, but just like, you know, you got to sit and concentrate <laughs> and, and not be interrupted. And it seems like that seems like one of the more important, impactful things. Like, how do you actually get the developer to just start coding, right? And yeah. and maintain their concentration. But also one of the things that like, maybe is very difficult to do and care about. I, I, I don't know, but what's, what's, what's your thinking about how you like get people just to like get to the part where they're typing and, and, you know, and to escape from the lines of code like thing, like, sure, sometimes not typing is good too, but you know, where you're like solving the problems and working yeah. on delivering that business value and stuff. I that that's kind of quite a hard one. Um, and again, the, 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 the modern kind of desktop environment is not by default conducive to that because unless you, unless you take the trouble to switch off, you know, email alerts and that thing. Again, I've paired with so many people. They've got an email alert popping in every 30 seconds and a Teams thing every 60 seconds. How on earth do you concentrate with all that going on? You don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I remember early, I guess maybe way back in 2015 when I first started working at Pivotal, one of the, to, to exactly this, one of the things that like, was a little weird to wrap my head around is like, of course, in, in the, uh, or as we say nowadays, Tanzu Labs, but formerly Pivotal Labs, like they, uh, they would do pair programming on like a shared workstation. And I remember asking like, what's that laptop over on a podium for? And they were like, oh, that's where you can go check email. <laughs> but there's just like this very much so a separation of like, here's the coding keyboard and there's yeah. the farting around keyboard <laughs> over there. But it does seem like that, and, 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 and the, the other thing is like, that's just, it's not even a tip of an iceberg. That's just like a particle floating in the air of like the stack of stuff to worry about, right? Like it goes on and on and on just to like focus on like, 
here's us coding. There's so many other things to, uh, to, to stress out about. Yeah. So when you go in uh, for these engagements and you're working with developers sort of side by side pair programming to either, you know, I guess move applications maybe from traditional VMs into some sort of platform. I mean, obviously you're, you're then experiencing the same either, you know, pain or obstacles that they do uh, when they face the entire automation plat uh, I guess, yeah, pipeline that may be available to them. Do you, like, how often do you find that in your role, uh, pair programming with the developers to move applications that you can make a significant impact on the rest of the organization that is responsible for the automation? And I guess, and also, do you see that getting better over time with technology changing? That's a good question because I mean, the, the, the sort of the, the lab's model of working is that engagements tend to be quite short. So we usually leave a report at the end and we'll say, well, that these are the things you might want to think about <laughs> if you really want to get right. stuff done. But um, we don't always get the chance to go back and, and see how much of an impact it's made. I mean, I think, I think over time, you know, there's a kind of drip, drip. Maybe they gradually get the message. Well, that's important, right? I mean, just somebody coming in with fresh eyes and, and uh, being able to uh, summarize it and document it and get it yeah. into the right hands of, of the right people uh, should make an impact. You would hope. I mean, yeah. at the end of it all, they, they kind of, these organizations pay us because they say they want help to improve their process. So you would hope that they would listen and we say, hey, there are other things in your process that you haven't even thought about. Right, that have an, that have ramifications, and they're having a real impact. Right, right. I mean, you also mentioned in your article this tension between security and you know really letting your developers uh, be a little bit more free and experiment. Um, yeah. And yeah, and trying to reach a middle ground there, right? I guess not, not, not to compromise security in production, but to reach a middle ground. Exactly. Yeah. And again, you see, you see too often that. Even in the kind of development platforms, if you want a resource, it's a ticket process. And you not only have to raise a ticket, you have to say what your expected traffic is. Well, I don't know. I haven't built it yet. You know, it's kind of... <laughs> some, of this, some of these processes, they, they're kind of... They are, they're very heavyweight and they're designed for... We are, now, we are now standing up a big, heavy-duty production system. And you're using that same process for someone who's just trying to get something set up quickly in dev to do a prototype. Yeah. I, I spent, um, I mean, part of, you know, before I joined Pivotal as well, I, I'd done a lot of consulting and, and um, hands-on work and, you know, worked for different companies with different kinds of computers. And I found it always a bit, you know, speaking of security, like, you know, part of my brain under understands security, but, part of me was always also very demoralized whenever I would encounter a situation where either I didn't have administrative privileges to install something basic, or I would try to help somebody who didn't have administrative privileges. I just, yeah. I really find it. Yeah. It's, it's just demoralizing. It really is. And again, you see it again and again, that they, they're kind of developers on windows laptops and either they can't, install anything although that's rarer for developers but even the developers they have to go through this kind of tedious process of requesting admin rights that they will then get for 24 hours so they can install something you know it's and it's, it's demoralizing and especially when you have to do that every day of the week 
And I mean, I worked with, a, again, with a telco. We were working with um, people who are being expected to containerize an application. Um, but their laptops weren't really powerful enough to run containers. They, they, they were just too slow to run Docker. And then I said, hey, if we could use the Windows system subsystem for Linux, that would be great because we could install some useful tools. But we couldn't get that working on their laptop. Even with the administrator privileges, they'd kind of lock down stuff so that effectively, I don't know if you ever tried to get set up WSL on a Windows machine, but you have to kind of enable some stuff in the OS. And then you have to get Windows distribution from the Windows marketplace. Mm. This particular organization, we managed to get through all the early stages. We managed to enable it in the OS. But then you go to the marketplace and you discover that there's a special lockdown one for the telco. And you, there's no window, there's no Linux distribution in there. You can't do it. Wow. Mm. And yeah, you know, it, you're, you're, you're making me think that like tying a lot of the stuff together. I mean, you know, we, we, we work at a software company that, that like yourself, uh, does a lot of consulting and working with people, but also sells a lot of products. So we, we get, uh, we spend a lot of time paying attention to the products yeah. that uh, we want to, we want to get people to buy from us and to use and make their life better and improve the world. Uh, but there's almost, if you were to think of a, how do we, if, if, if going back to my, my, my thing, like if most all the executives or managers and all the way up to probably like shareholders of companies are like software is really important and that's how we're going to survive and thrive. And, and you kind of work down from that. Probably there's a maturity model is the wrong thing, but there's probably a path of questions to go through. And like the first one is like, when I fill out a ticket to like get a, get, get a machine, do I have to say the expected load on it? <laughs> right. And, and like, <laughs> even, even before that, I mean, there, there, there could even be like, just looking at the full, like, you know, we're always emphasizing if you want to improve your software, you have to look at like everything from like idea to a user clicking on the software in production, your, your path to production and yeah. whether it's gold or platinum or whatever metallurgical color the path is uh, today. And part, maybe there's even a, a, a bigger picture, which is like, you've just hired a developer, right? And one of the questions could be, so when you ship them a laptop, is it a developer laptop or a we don't trust you employee laptop? And like spend the first week fixing that and then we'll come back. And just like kind of like a series of things where kind of like the, 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 um, you know, the, the position that you were saying where like us in the tech world are used to getting a developer laptop. Although when I started at Dell, I did have to file a ticket to get the, you can actually do things, but that's a hardware company, uh, which kind of makes a little more sense or not. Uh, but like, it does seem like there's this series of things that once you have management in a company wanting to have developers, I'm trying not to call it like remedial to be kind of pejorative about it, but it's just like, yeah, this is a brand new thing that you're doing. Like, and here's the way it goes through the same way that I would imagine, hopefully this doesn't have to happen too much anymore. And, but I would imagine in like, you know, the late eighties and nineties people, car manufacturers were probably like, yeah, we'd love to have high quality and sell lots of cars. And I read that lean book and I don't know what's going on. Right. Like, and so it's sort of like, well, let's go through all the steps, right? First, you got to put socks on, then you put shoes on, like, and all, all the things until you get to the actual practices of it. 
which probably is helpful to do for people. Uh, organizations who treat their developers like a cost center instead of like a um, valuable cog in, in the drivetrain. Yeah. I'm just... I mean, maybe crazy idea. Maybe one of the things is to is to put some people with actual development experience in, in that C-suite. <laughs> and I'll say, look, this is why you're making these guys miserable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they may not they may not fully understand the the ramifications of it. And because at the end of the day, like you can spend a lot of time trying to improve your corporate culture. But you know, if you do give developers uh, limited permissions and resources and and make them feel too restricted, then that is that it's another way of establishing culture, right? You're there's a statement in that. Yeah, um, I don't trust you. I don't trust the statement. <laughs> Yeah, you know that's that's an interesting thought, and be it'd be interesting to hear what 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 y'all both think about this is is you know as at least at least when I was kind of like taught as a developer, one of the principles is to have a very strong separation, like causal separation between like tools and process and culture, right? Like you don't you don't want your tools driving, forcing you to do something or limiting you. However it does seem like your tools determine your process and culture and kind of vice versa, right? Like, I don't know, like I don't quite have the relationship figured out between like how important tools actually are for the type of process or culture that you want to do and, and in the other direction. Like it's, it gets a little confusing because people are very obsessed with like phrases like, you know, technology isn't hard, people are hard, but it seems like they're both very hard and then you combine them together and they're impossible. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I mean, you mentioned that also somewhere in your article, you spoke about, um, you know, having a good developer portal. It doesn't mean that you just add like another thing alongside, I think you mentioned like Confluence and SharePoint, like you already have all these things. It's not a question of like slapping on another one. Like you really have to consolidate. Yeah. Cause I've, again, every, everything in that article I've seen, somewhere and I did, you'll notice I didn't name any guilty parties but um everybody's guilty but it, yeah everybody's guilty but you know it, it, they kind of there's this kind of realization hey people can't find what they need and the thing is we'll do a developer portal so are you going to get rid of the other stuff no <laughs> <laughs> well now it's all you've you, you now I've got three places to look in and I still can't find what I want you know it's I it always astounds me that you know you can go to the internet and go to you know any choose your favorite search engine and and type something in and the results are are, it's so easy to work with the results and yet you go into an internal corporate search engine or search site and it's you know it's like what is what's going on here i don't understand this weirdly i mean someone explained this to me once um that actually enterprise search is much harder problem than internet (laughs) search because PageRank, you know, the, the famous Google algorithm, works at internet scale. It doesn't really work at corporate scale because you haven't got enough kind of people doing things and linking to other things and all the kind of signals oh, interesting. that you can use to build your, your ranked index that you have on the internet. And that's why, yeah, corporate searches is a disaster all the time. And it has been for as long as, I, as, as, for as, long as it's existed that I've seen it. It's, it's never worked. I've never seen one that works well. There's probably also there's probably also a lot of that uh, that lack of trust of just 
you know, like governance and security and like the idea of like, I remember, I remember in the back when I was a programmer, like, uh, the, uh, that Google mini search, mini search appliance came out and yeah. I remember we got one and plugged it in and there were several people who were like, Oh my God, I didn't realize people could find that. Like, you know, and so there is, there is a certain amount of governance that probably nowadays, thanks to like SharePoint and other things, people have gone through a decade or so of worrying about it and thinking about it, but it is, uh, that 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 is an issue but the point you two are raising is 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 right it's just like i mean it goes back to just the basics of just like well does search work <laughs> right? yeah and i think to be honest you know maybe people aren't ready to to face up to it but there's there's i don't know really if you want search to work in that kind of environment somebody has to do some curation mm. to make it work yeah. and i mean maybe maybe that's something that ai might be useful for yeah hopefully yeah. But, you know, it, it, at the moment, search just doesn't seem to work in those environments. And, and the only way I can see to make it work is that somebody actually tells a search engine, hey, this one is important and this one isn't so important. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I see what you're saying in terms of like the ranking. I, yeah. uh, I can see that and I can see how it's kind of like um, a catch 22, right? Like if you don't have. If you if you can't if it can't be trained based on like just people searching and, and linking, then it's hard to have the same end result. But I also feel like a lot of these search engines don't they don't even have a lot of hits to begin with. Like there's other stuff there that they don't seem to find. Maybe it's I don't know that it's the same technical explanation for why those things don't show up. I don't know. I mean, my my experience generally when I've, is usually the opposite that I can see a million results. And not one of them that's coming near the top is the one I want. The one I want may be there, but it's so far down, I'm never, ever going to find it. So it's more of a yeah, Sometimes you're right. There's stuff that you search for and you know it must be there. Nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's fat. I never thought about it that way. That is a fascinating way to think about it. But yeah, it's true. Like uh, AI, AI can probably help us. Yeah. I mean, certainly that's my experience with the, um, with, with searching on source. But, you know, VMware is that I will get a million hits, but unless I'm very lucky, it's not the one I was looking for. Right, right, right. Speaking of AI, are you seeing that yet in your work? Uh, not yet. No, um, I'm sure it will come. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what I think about AI. To be honest, I'm kind of still very skeptical and sitting on the fence a bit because it feels like that there's been incredible progress over the last couple of years, obviously, and I'm astonished at how well something like ChatGPT understands and parses my sentence and comes back with something. But it feels like they're kind of, they're hitting now the hard problems that are still really hard to solve when the machine doesn't really still understand anything. And you kind of wonder, well, is it, is there going to be a way to get past that? and make this stuff genuine, genuinely useful and not hallucinate and not make things up and all the other problems it's prone to right now and also be, you know, eminently hackable because you can't defend against prompt injection the way you can against SQL injection. Mm -hmm. So are yeah. those problems going to be solvable or is it going to be another kind of blind alley like all the others with AI that we've seen? Because for as long as I can remember, AI and nuclear fusion have been about two decades away. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, there's no, yeah, there's no real system of checks and balances, right? I mean, even today on the internet, like the best you can do, these fact checkers, I assume it's mostly manual work. 
right? Yeah. So there's, uh, I guess we're lacking a, we'd have to somehow automate a system of checks and balances if that's possible. But it, it startled me how easy it was. Well, I mean, I've, I've been told ChatGPT4 is better, but I, I had a, a conversation a few months ago with ChatGPT3.5, and, and I was talking to it about Bing, because Microsoft are experimenting with putting it into Bing. And apparently there'd been some, the, 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 the internal code name for it was Sydney. Um, for the for the for the Bing bot or whatever they, they were going to call it, and it'd be, there'd been problems with it, kind of really having quite deranged conversations with people who got widely reported. And I thought I'd, I'd talk to Jack GPT about that, and I said, "Do you know about the problems with Sydney?" And it probably probably made up this whole story about the development team in Sydney, Australia, getting <laughs> messages from people, getting abusive messages, and it was kind of like, "You made that up." <laughs> You literally made that up. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're, we're still a ways away, I guess. Well, the 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 last little cluster of things from from your article. I'm I'm you know, in addition to the rest of the world that, that I was curious to to ask about, especially with as you're saying, the the kind of perspective of going to different companies or organizations in um, <laughs> often in an early stage of wanting to do how they do software or improve it is like what what is the state of like having a like a like a pipeline in place you know not only you know it's easy to say CICD but like when I've looked at surveys over the years like a lot of people have continuous integration like maybe 50 percent and very few have the delivery or, or deployment where you can do it at will and so like, I mean, what's what's your general sense of like where everyone is with that? Because it seems like this seems like another one of those fundamental things that like, if you don't even have continuous integration, start with that, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. like get get your build pipeline fixed up. So, I mean, mostly, most of the the, the projects I've worked on those guys, they they, they have had they they have had CI. Um, at least something. So, having said that, we when we wanted to set set one up for a modernization project, it was really hard because we couldn't find the resource, and literally we couldn't find a machine to run it on. You know, right? Kind of endless problems. And then we were told, "Oh, there's this big super centralized project that is providing pipelines for everyone." So you go and look at that, and it's kind of yeah, but we're really overloaded. We can't help you right now. So it's kind of this, there's obviously a belief that this stuff is important, but again, companies, again, big enterprises, like kind of, if this stuff is important, we must have a centralized group who will manage it for everyone. And then you're back in tickets and silos and right. chucking stuff over the wall again. Wouldn't it be better if you had a smaller group of people who just come and help everyone set up their pipeline in the best way and let them look after it themselves? Yeah, it seems, I mean, there's there's definitely this whole idea of like running a platform as a product that, uh, and sort of like, especially the angle of like, you should build, so if, so this platform that would automate this pipeline for you, right? Like yeah. you should build it, part of part of running it as a plat, as a product means it, it, that you're doing it a bit more organically because you're, you you have to, you, you want it to be optional, right? It's not mandated that everybody must use it. And so therefore 
automatically you have to build a product that people will want to use. And that implies that you have a feedback loop where you can show it to people, have people who, who recognize that it's the better alternative of the ones available, begin to use it, give you feedback, and then you can begin to improve your own, the, the platform that you're managing in this way. So it has to, almost by definition, if you're gonna run your platform as a product, it sort of can't be this central silo kind of mm. waterfall approach. It has to be an organic one where they are talking to developers. Yeah, and that's interesting because uh, again, I, I'm, I'm on an engagement at the moment with, with another bank. <laughs> I seem to get all the banks. Um, <laughs> and they've actually built, or someone in the organization has actually built what looks like a pretty nice platform internally. Um, but they don't really want to talk to the developers. They're just saying, well, here's the platform. Um, so what should we, how should we use it? Your, it's your application. You decide. These are the features. And, yeah, that's great. But I kind of, you kind of think, well, Actually, even Amazon don't do that. If you go to Amazon and say, hey, I want to run my application on your platform, they're going to help you. They're not going to say, here's our platform, go get on with it. They're going to try, you know, depending on how much money you've got to spend, they're either going to point you at some resources or, you know, if you think you're going to be a big customer, they're going to send someone on to speak to you and help you draw the diagrams. Right, which kind of like speaks to probably the, the way that companies define the incentives and the metrics around yeah. that platform team. They're not, they're, they're somehow not structuring that, that yeah. incentivized. Uh, it, you know, Amazon is the first, probably, probably the first platform as a product. That's literally what it was. Mm. And, um, you know, I don't think everything they do is fabulous, but I think if you don't kind of look at some of the lessons they've learned the hard way, you're making a mistake. Yeah, you know, I never actually thought about it that way. I, I would never, I wouldn't have thought to put it in those words. But you're right, right? That is because that's after all that that is what public cloud was. It was yeah. literally platform. Literally the first one, and we're we're, we're going to put this stuff up, and we're going to get people to pay for it. Yeah, and hopefully they. Yeah, yes, I, and although I guess the the road from giving you the the car pieces so that you could build your own car to actually yeah. like the DevX. It is a platform as a product, but it's not a DevX focused one. It's not. I mean, it's, and it's kind of interesting because um, I started working with AWS, I guess, in about 2011, 2012. So not, not right at the beginning, but fairly early on. And it was interesting watching how fast it matured and how kind of Azure, Microsoft starts at the other end because they did start with kind of we want a developer experience and you will build your applications in this way and they will run brilliant yeah. on our platform. And they were forced to gradually head down the stack and start offering more and more infrastructure as a service. Oh, and Amazon wow. kind of went in the wrong, the opposite direction. They started off with the infrastructure as a service but realized actually people were going to want a platform. Well, the other thing about these these companies offering their their infrastructure as as a, as it's a it's a form of platform as a product because the other challenge that they have is that they have so many different customers. Whereas yeah. if you're in an organization, your your use case is much more uh, specific, and so there's also this idea of platform, this whole idea of golden path, right? That that has become sort of the, the, the new phrase with uh, Spotify and Backstage, where you want to provide. A default with a sensible default like you know some options but you, it should be more obvious like what is the what is the one that this organization wants you to follow or some some something more opinionated and simplified yeah make it easy 
make it easier. Again, the, the problem with a lot of these, you know, getting the kind of the, the if you like, more mature organisations that I'm working with, their software stack goes back probably quite often to the 1980s and everything since then. You know, again, if you look at if you look at a bank, a, a typical retail bank, certainly in the UK, they built their what is now their core banking system. The core of that they probably built back in the 1980s on an IBM mainframe using COBOL, and that's still running. Mm-hmm. That's still at the heart of the business, and everything else kind of has to be fitted around that. It does. It, it does mean they have peculiar challenges of their own. That uh, you know. Companies like Spotify just don't have. Also, Spotify goes down for a couple of days. People are going to be upset. But when a bank goes down for a couple of days, and we've we've had that in this country, we've had, um, I know NatWest had a big outage about 10, 15 years ago. And there was another of the retail banks, I think was it, I can't remember if it was HSBC or Lloyd's, also had big outages that went on for two or three days. People are, are not just inconvenienced, they're furious and they can't get their money. Right, right. And it has, yeah. So they, you know, banks, from that point of view, I understand why they tend to be a little more conservative mm-hmm. in their approach. Correct. Yeah. But they're, yeah, yeah. I think the ask is from a DevEx experience perspective, it's to differentiate sort of an experimentation area from yes, production. Absolutely. Give, give us a play pit, but we treat yeah. production seriously. <laughs> exactly well great well that that was that was uh uh well i i i i uh, uh came up with a bunch of questions which is always good mysteries to solve like like uh, for example like we kind of hit on the other mystery which i uh, uh often forget is a mystery out there which is uh you know you're talking about like uh azure starting out as a platform as a service and then google was the same thing right like yeah. i mean famously i think the people who built kubernetes had built app engine or something like that and uh, and then of course we have the old heroku and then you know recently like all the passes and the uh the pre kind of pre-docker pre-kubernetes era and there is like there's this constant thing of like i, I don't know if developers actually want a platform because we keep giving it to them and just like just like kids who, you know, say they want some food for dinner and then they don't, they keep sending it back. And I, I, don't, well, I don't know what to give them. I, I, I so I, my first experience with, with Cloud Foundry was when I joined Pivotal. And I kind of, after a kind of initial, well, why would you want this? Once you actually touch it and use it, you think, actually, I don't ever want to do anything else other than this ever exactly. again, frankly. Yeah. Um, it's the uh, yeah. it's the thing of like once you can get the kid to try the food, yeah, exactly. Maybe they'll but eat it. This is back to my 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 theory that that um you know the this this IT industry the tech industry is like the fashion industry. Kubernetes is terribly fashionable and sexy, and everybody wants it, even though actually, I mean, frankly, it's a pain to use. I think. Mm. Yeah, I've been forced to that. move from Cloud Foundry to Kubernetes. I have not found that enjoyable. Yeah, it's yeah. very See, interesting. That's... Lots of fun, and I can build interesting things. But it's like if I could not do it, mm-hmm. I'd be happy not to do it. And and you know, going all the way back to the beginning, right before the end here, you know, that's that's part of what drives the uh, why did we need more than COBOL question. It's sort yeah. of like, it seemed fine, and now here we are. <laughs> but here we are. I mean, and obviously, you know, the, 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 it's not only a rhetorical question, this, whatever this, how can we can never, not never, that shouldn't be hyperbolic, but how come it's so difficult to get a platform uh, in, into the industry? But 
it also the the positive side of that is as you were alluding to is there are these like incremental improvements in how things are done when you move technologies over and uh it's always i i don't know i don't i don't think in in software development we have a good understanding of i don't even have phrases for it but like it's not like creative destruction it's creative some other word <laughs> of, of like how do you how do you evolve something and moving it move it forward without it being like let's just knock it all down and build up from the beginning or or maybe it does happen but it is a uh, a strange evolution of of things but anyhow speaking of strange evolutions this conversation has evolved in exciting fun ways <laughs> and uh if, if someone wanted to uh you know we'll put a link to the uh, the article we've been talking about and uh, links to other things but uh do, is there a place that you would point people to if they're interested in hearing about more whether it was about your illustrious career in COBOL land, what you, what you do in, in consulting, uh, you know, nowadays. You can find me on LinkedIn, but that's a bit bare, to be honest. Um, although that does, that my LinkedIn profile does at least now have links to to most of the things I've written over the last few years. Well, that's good, and and we'll put in uh, we'll put in the links of things we know about because yeah. it's uh, it's so, good stuff. Like it, it's it's a good span of things to, to so consume. The, the, the hint, if you want to Google me. You will not find me as Paul Kelly. <laughs> Paul Kelly is an ungoogleable name because there are so many Paul Kellys, and they're nearly all more famous than I. Which is the most important, Paul? We have to. We have to tell. We have to let Google know that you are the most important. Well, if you if you add the word COBOL to the search term Paul <laughs> Kelly, there's a good chance you'll hit something to do with me. Exactly. On the first page or so. <laughs> or I guess VMware at this point. Right? And possibly VMware as well. Yeah. yeah. Indeed. Yeah, if, if if you do, uh, so yeah, we will link it. But if you do, Google Paul Kelly VMware, you should uh, get the hit to his article published in April, actually, a developer perspective on developer experience, which touches on all these ideas of what exactly is developer experience, what does it mean to the business, what is the tension with security, what is uh, running your platform as a product. A lot of really great material covered in this uh, in this read. So I would definitely recommend folks go through that well great well thanks again and and uh for, for people listening if you want to find all of that you just go to uh, tanzutalk.com and uh you can find the show notes for this episode or if you want to watch it on youtube or whatever you can look it up there but it's uh, all over the place so uh with that we'll see everyone next time bye yeah, bye Paul, thank you so much thanks well, for, thank you for thank you for having me it's been uh, it's been a pleasure Our yeah pleasure. it was great <laughs>